Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith. We are going to continue our discussion about metaphysics. And today what we want to discuss is purpose in being. Last week, we had spoke about authentic being, and, we, and particularly the area of study of and philosophy of metaphysics and how that studies being. And two things that we kind of drew from, re, from the reality of the being is that in it are meaning and purpose. And we spoke uh, last time uh, a little bit about meaning, and today what we want to do is talk about purpose in being. Um, so, Dr. Smith, maybe you can give us a, a quick recap of when we talk about um, being itself, uh, of course, metaphysics being the study of that being, um, but also, you know, how do we uh, how do we find meaning and purpose in this being? So, uh, thank you, Jason. That one of the the main tasks in philosophy, and then especially in metaphysics, is uh, to come to an understanding of what things are. Mm-hmm. Right. That is to discover uh, the definition uh, of things, and that's rooted really in understanding the essence of things. So, last time we talked uh, a good bit about the idea of meaning. Right. And so when you think about meaning, just just think definition. Right. Right. Can you define things? And, uh, you know, in a classical perspective, we can define things. And many of the most important definitions are based really on reality. Right. That is that we can define, say, for example, homo sapien or, or man as a rational animal. That's not a made up definition that's a discovery right right that's a discovery of a meaning that's already embedded in within human reality and so uh, that's very important right that is that the definitions of things the meaning of things uh, that we can define things and that those definitions are set really not by us um, in, in the most important cases but really by uh, reality itself mm-hmm. right and so that there's a sense in which the definitions of things are independent from uh, human caprice, human will, and human mind. Of course, it takes a well-ordered human mind to bring those definitions to light, but um, those definitions aren't ultimately subject to or subordinate to uh, the human mind. Um, in philosophy, that's called realism, right? That is, you have the view, right, that that there are definitions, that there are meanings, that there is real, that there are real essences mm-hmm. that are outside of the mind. The opposite of realism in philosophy is idealism, the view that you know all definition, all meaning is subordinate to the human mind. So that's what we talked about last time. Obviously, I would say that's very important. You start to think about things like justice, marriage, friendship, uh, sexuality, all those sorts of issues, right? Clearly, it's very important, right? That right. definitions go beyond uh, you know sort of the human ideas. Rather, ide- our ideas need to be based on and can be based on reality. Yeah, and one of the other points that we made is that when something exists, it exists as something, which which means it has right. those distinguishing characteristics. Like you said, uh, it's mm-hmm. something that we discover. It's not something that we ourselves uh, uh, define in that in that absolute sense. Um, but sure. when some and when, so we made that connection, of course, between existence and essence. Uh, that right. when something exists, you know, and, and we understand this, like things do not just kind of exist in a blob, you know, when something right. exists and we say, oh, that's, you know, a chair. Well, you know, there's distinguishing characteristics of a chair uh, that have to do with the nature of the chair. And so 
we understand this about so many things yet you know in our modern culture we like to say well we can define things however we want and you know you right. do you do you you know and like those horrible i mean they're not even good on a bumper sticker they're not even good bumper, you know so uh, you know what, hey, Jason? I'm sorry to get off track here, but yeah. you know I heard this terrible phrase the other day called adulting. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like well, it's a <laughs> like it's a like it's a like it's a verb. Like you can you can start adulting and then stop adulting. Yeah, yeah. People people today get tired of adulting, so they just need like, <laughs> and and that's what that's what's led to the invention of these. You, you you'll get a kick out of this. Look it up when we're done here. It's a. Uh, yeah. uh, it's a little, it's essentially like a, a pop-up tent for an adult to take to their office and they can have this little pop-up tent so that they can take a break from adulting or whatever and just kind of sit sit in their tent and collect their thoughts. You know, um, we, we really actually just need an invasion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, in general, I'm against war. Like, I, I want to try to have as few wars as possible. Yeah. But, but... maybe we just need a good invasion, you know, just, just a good invasion to kind of... I mean, good grief. How pathetic, right? Oh, I my mean, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's... Our ancestors would mock us, you know? I mean, they would just mock us. Oh, uh, yeah. Not even not even that far. Just, I mean, our grown adults mock us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the idea that it's a verb that you can start doing and stop doing is uh -huh. absurd, yeah. right? You either are an adult or you are not, right? <laughs> And you never get to just sort of say, "Oh well, I'm not adulting now. I did that for two hours a day. Check. Now yeah. what? Now what? Now what are you? A child, <laughs> right? right? I mean, if so, then please don't vote, don't drive a car, don't own own a house. You yeah, know, none of that stuff. Just stay, in, just... stay in the house. Stay in your little right. pop up tent. So there's a failure to define, right? <laughs> <laughs> and to realize that sorry, you don't ever get to take a break from being an adult. You <laughs> right. either are. Or you are not. <laughs> maybe we should do a giveaway. We'll do a giveaway. Maybe of one of those adult tents. People, people can listen to our metaphysics lectures in their adult tent and <laughs> realize what yeah. they're doing is absurd. You but, get a little butt, but like you could pan on. You could, yeah. I adulted today. <laughs> Which leads into what we're talking about today with finding purpose and being, and mm -hmm. that along with meaning. So kind of you know what a thing is, the nature of it. Uh, we can also find um, uh, the purpose, or uh, as sure. philosophy says, natural ends. Right. Um, so may maybe, Dr. Smith, we could begin there by defining kind of what a natural end is, um, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, how do we go about like understanding the natural end of things? You know how because it it, it seems to be you know if it is discussed today, it's disputed that things have natural ends. So how is this right. something that we can uh, uh, understand and, and grasp and help show others? Sure. Um, yeah, this is a very controversial point, but it's closely connected to what we're talking about with respect to definition and meaning. Uh, and I think it's just really crucial in terms of dealing with the kind of, um, I don't know, um, chaotic and disordered culture in which we live um so when i when i'm in class the way i deal with this is to is to connect purpose and meaning in the question of the meaning of life mm -hmm. so uh there was a textbook a, a place i was required uh to to use um for a number of semesters where they had like the last chapter was the meaning of life right <laughs> and uh so being a good philosophy professor i put on the, i wrote on the board what is the meaning of 
the meaning of life, right? <laughs> so what, what is the, the meaning of this question, right? And uh, of course that annoyed the students, but it actually sparked a good conversation. And one of the things uh, that comes out of that is, to, is you come to recognize how closely meaning and purpose are connected. Yeah. So when people raise the question of the meaning of life, you know, what does it all mean? What does my life mean? What is the meaning of my family, my romance, my whatever it may be? The purpose starts to creep in. And there's a good reason for that, which is that very often, I wouldn't necessarily say in every case, I mean, I don't want to be that sweeping, but at least very often or most of the time, definition, that is meaning, comes to light when you understand purpose, right? Uh, so we can sort of define what something is when we know why it is, mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, raison d'etre, right? It's, it's goal, it's telos, right? Um, the purpose for which it exists. So I can give you a, a good example of this, I think. It's just kind of a basic example is when you think about um, um, the question, what is it with respect to the heart, right? And I, I mean, literally the physical organ, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, you know, if you kind of look in a lot of tech, you know, biology textbooks, at some point they'll say something like, well, the heart is a pump. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we even use language like valves, right? And chambers, mm -hmm. right? Things mm -hmm. like that, right? Because the function of a heart, right? The purpose of a heart, right? Is to circulate blood through the body. And so once you grasp, once you comprehend the function or purpose that distinguishes the heart, right? Uh, as an organ in the body, right? Uh, see, the eye doesn't have that function. The eye has a different function, mm -hmm. right? Once you understand that that purpose, then you can start to understand the heart, right? Does that make sense, right? So once you grasp the purpose of a thing, right? Yeah. Grasp its function, then you can begin to really understand the what it is, really. So in a lot of cases, although we talked about definition first last time, really a lot of discovering the definition of, of a thing comes down to understanding the purpose of a thing that's embedded sort of within its very being. And that's why in our language, we can use things like analogies. Mm -hmm. I mean, if things didn't have purpose or meaning, we wouldn't be able to use anything analogously. I mean, like, sure. like, like just take the example you were, you were using there with the heart. I mean, right, we, we right. speak about the, uh, in classic spirituality, we speak about the heart. Um, you know, we wouldn't be able to use the heart as, as an analogy in that way if we didn't understand, again, like you said, uh, the central function of the heart mm -hmm. in the body. That without the right. heart, there's no blood, there's no life, you die. Um, and, and so we speak about it in, a, in, you know, in an analogous way. Um, but if, again, if nothing had purpose or meaning... Uh, we wouldn't be able to, our, our sure. speech and language would be uh, just very limited and, and using analogies would just be stupid. It just, right. would, yeah, yeah. it just wouldn't make any sense because, oh, we can, you know, we can define it or, you know, something like that. Um, so, so the getting down to the nature of things has many different uh, um, consequences, effects sure. uh, that mm -hmm. we don't always, that we don't always realize. I mean, like, like mm -hmm. that, for example, the, uh, the use in language it's important to sure. understand the nature of the thing that's right yeah and really i mean i think plato had the the, the insight here uh early on in, in classical philosophy aristotle i think gives it more precision but mm -hmm. had the insight to to claim that you know we see all things through the good right and that sounds very strange at first right, right. but then you sort of start playing out like what's the good of a thing what's its purpose mm -hmm. right 
then you start to understand it, right? So the understanding, right? Seeing, metaphorically taking, seeing is a result of comprehending purpose. Mm -hmm. Like once we get a, once we get the idea that oh, this thing is organized around a given purpose, then we can understand what it is. We can begin to define it. Right. If you think about uh, even just the idea of order. Right. Just mm -hmm. just that term order. Like what, what is an order? Right. Uh, what, what's the difference between um, a pile of bricks in a house? Right. I mean, one thing you could say is, you know, like you could come over to my house and say, hey, Dr. Smith, that's a lovely pile of bricks you have there. <laughs> and I would say, oh, well, thanks, I guess. But, you know, I, I usually call it a house. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> it's not just a pile of bricks. And the reason it's not just a pile of bricks is because it has a different purpose, namely, um, uh, to shelter my family, right? Mm -hmm. And its order, right, is a, is an, is a result of that purpose. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense, right? Yeah. So the organization, the way the bricks are stacked on top of each other, the way the fact that we have walls <laughs> that, go, you know, that are upright, uh, the fact that there's a roof, all of that sort of thing revolves around purpose, right? So. Uh, in, in Aristotle's language, this comes down to what he calls the final cause. Mm -hmm. Some of this language, again, is a little difficult for us to think about. It sounds a little strange at first, but uh, final here doesn't mean last in sequence. Right. The final cause can sometimes be last in sequence, but actually in the causal order, the final cause for Aristotle is prior. In fact, right. the final cause is prior to all of the other causes, right? Um, which is, is, is very important when you start to think about it. Uh, so the organization of my eye, the organization of my heart, the organization of my house, all of those things exist in the way that they do because of the purpose to which they are, are ordained. Um, yeah, so if, you think of, so if you think of it like, uh, uh, like you're going on a trip, you begin with the destination, and then you That's figure right. out how to get there. So you begin with, mm -hmm. I want a house. Okay, let's. I have these bricks. Let's put them in order to build that house. Sure. So. So yeah, I think that, that that's fairly easy to grasp. Um, that the, even though it's called the final cause, it's first in the order of operation. It's first, yeah, it's first in the order of intention. At least. Sorry, first in the order it, of intention. Yeah, yeah. It might be last in, in accomplishment, but still, it's it's it still has this kind of causal priority. Now, this is uh, I think it's really amusing because uh, the example you use is very apropos about going on a trip or going on a journey, right? So often we hear this nonsense. You know, people are like, well, on my spiritual journey, I'm da 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 da, you know, whatever. When they start talking about, you know, their spiritual journey in this way, that's like, well, I'm just contradicting myself, but it's just part of my journey, right? And and really what they mean is, well, I'm just changing, right? Right, right, right. They, they, they use the word journey, but in a way in which we would almost never use the word journey in most cases, right? Usually when we're on a journey, we have a destination. Yeah, it's more of a spiritual... Completion. Yeah, it's more of a spiritual wondering like, right. That's right. Yeah. It's called being lost. Yeah. <laughs> right. That, yeah. My spirit. Yeah. My spiritual losing, you know, like <laughs> my spiritual lostness. Yeah. I mean, like if you were like, hey, Dr. Smith, uh, uh, I'm going to take the family to Florida. You know, and I was like, oh, really? That's great. What, what route are you going to take? You're like, well, we're going to go through Kentucky, Iowa, <laughs> Montana. And like, dude, like do you, you don't know where you're going, obviously, <laughs> Maybe that's a good question we should ask. You know, when somebody says, you know, they're talking about their spiritual journey, maybe that's a good first question. Where are you going? That's right. You what know? <laughs> because if you don't have a destination, then you're just wandering. 
Yeah, or it's some like kind of like vapid self-discovery. Yeah, yeah, I am my destination. I mean, if somebody says that, you need to just be like, fairly well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, because that, that's, not, that's not a great destination. Yeah, I mean, that's completely anti-Christian when Christ himself says, I am the way, not you. That's right. Um, so uh, I, I think I'd illustrate this well uh, if you just kind of think about, uh, again, a, just sort of a physical example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you... In a, in a classical perspective, say the perspective of Aristotle or St. Thomas or Plato, um, the human eye has the structure that it has, right? It's super complex. It's a very interesting uh, organ. I like those when you go into the your, uh, doctor's office. I, I went for an eye exam a couple years back, and uh, it was a nice um, doctor's office. Optometrist, is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, yeah. Right. And it had one of those big rubber models of the eyeball, but it was like big, <laughs> like bigger than my head, right? And like it's one of the kinds you could take apart, you know? Yeah. So cool. uh, yeah, I took a little bit for the doctor to get in there. So I was like, well, I'm gonna take his. I started taking his <laughs> about halfway through, and he comes in, of course. But he's like putting the, it in. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but here's the thing: it's like it's super complex. It's got all these different little parts, and if one part is just sort of misaligned, right? If one part doesn't fit with the other in just exact uh, in exactly the right way, yeah, then the eye doesn't function right. And so the way Aristotle would have thought thought of this, and, and Saint Thomas is, the eye has both the parts and the arrangement that it has. So those two things are important: mm-hmm. parts and arrangement. Um, we, we often don't, aren't that detailed when we think about things, right? But you right. think it's not just it the composition of the parts is important, like the lens, right? But if the lens was in the back of the eye rather than on the front of the eye, you wouldn't see anything, okay? <laughs> right? So it's placement, that is the arrangement of the parts is also important, right? Um, so as a mechanic, right, right, I mean, you know, if you take the carburetor and you just kind of set it in the back seat and it's not connected to anything, <laughs> I'd be like, hey, Jason, my car is working great. Oh, it should be working great. I got a carburetor. I understand what the problem is. Why isn't it turning on, right? <laughs> you say, well, is it, is it connected? No, but I got one. I mean, <laughs> you're telling me it matters where I put it? Yeah, it matters where you put it. Right? So demanding. <laughs> so demanding, right. So for Aristotle, the, the complexity of the eye, both its parts and its arrangement, mm-hmm. is due to the purpose of the eye. That right. is, the purpose of seeing is causally prior to the, the composition and arrangement of the eyeball, right? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it has all the parts that are needed and no extra parts, and it has them arranged properly for the purpose of uh, seeing, right? And that's why I mean by say, saying causally prior. Now, let me contrast that with uh, a more modern uh, evolutionary perspective. In that perspective, the, um, the eyeball is sort of the necessary outcome of a combination of random mutation and random interaction with the broader environment. Mm-hmm. So at some point, there were uh, genetic mutations, according to the evolutionary story. There were um, uh, uh, some random mutations, right, that some of our ancestors experienced at the genetic level mm-hmm. in which we developed eyes rather than not eyes, okay? And um, obviously having eyes is in most environments, not all, Right. But in most environments is more apt to um, facilitate survival. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's what I mean by the, the random interaction with the environment. Right. Because 
it, like, let's say that you, uh, we, we see this with, um, uh, um, the opposite with, uh, animals that are subterranean, right? Um, so, uh, fish and, and very, and some kinds of amphibians that are, that, that their whole species exist underground, right? Yeah. Very often they just have vestigial eyes because they don't need them. Like the eye, eyes don't do anything right in terms of survival, uh, in that, in that environment. And so, um, so the, the evolutionary story is, well, what happened is there was a random mutation and, you know, the survivors are the ones that had experienced a random mutation that was most apt to survival. Mm-hmm. So eyes are more apt to survival in most circumstances. And that's why most animals are eyed rather than non-eyed. Mm-hmm. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. So in that case, it's just sort of a happy outcome for some species versus others. Uh, that they uh, they have things that just happen to be very apt to seeing, right? Um, which it, I mean, it really needs to be put in that way. It just happens to be that the eyeball makes seeing happen. Uh, it's not designed. It's not for the purpose of. I, I remember it, I was re-listening to the podcast from last week, and you said something about uh, things being, de- you know, de- you know, the purpose for which they were designed. And I thought, man, you know, like contemporary philosophers, most evolutionists. You know, they would just sort of dismiss that, like, "What do you design? There is no design in nature, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's just some things randomly happen, and then some things are more efficient than others. That's the story." Yeah, it's. I think it's difficult with that position, though. Like when, like you said, when you get it, when you start to get into the details, not only do you have the parts, but you have the ordering of the parts. You have right. the ordering of complex things like the eye. It's mind-boggling. I mean, it, it's. Right. It's miraculous. Sure. Um, and, and I would say, you know, this the, that way of thinking, like where you try to exclude the idea of natural purpose, most philosophers who invoke this, right, have two agenda, right? One, to deny the existence of God. And two, uh, to deny the existence of natural purpose because of the ethical implications of natural purpose. Um, but when you're not doing that, like when you're not just being sort of a secular atheist rebel against God, yeah. right? Then, then really, this is just the natural way of human thinking, right? It's like if you go out in the woods and I talk to my kids, so I like camping and fishing and all that sort of thing, right? When, when you, when you're in, uh, when you're in the outdoors, you naturally think this way, right? That mm-hmm. is, you naturally think about plants and animals having purposes, and this explains their behavior and their structure. Right. Does that make sense, right? Like. You don't just say, well, you know, I don't know why the fish swims away. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why is why do the bass happen to hang out like hang out near shady areas with roots you know, or uh, sticks in the water? Yeah, roots and all that kind of, why do they hang out there? I don't know. They just happen to hang out there. No, because they want to ambush smaller fish. That's why. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow they could There's be in the purpose, ocean. Right? That's right. And once you understand that, right, that helps you to be better at fishing for bass, right? Um and, and, and all those sorts of things. So that uh, that's just a trivial example. But any of these sorts of things, right, that, this is the natural human way of, of thinking. You really have to almost be, and we have been, I would say, indoctrinated yeah. to stop thinking that there are natural purposes to things, right? Um, you know, if you were to ask, like, what's the purpose of the mouth? Well, to speak and to eat, yeah. right? And, and you can, we understand the alignment of the teeth, the placement of the tongue, all those things in terms of um, the, uh, those uh, functions, right? Functions we see in ourselves, but in other animals uh, as well. Yeah, in a, in, a, in a fun little, 
you might want to try this to illustrate the point if you have an atheist friend or something like that. The next time they have a birthday, give them a broken watch. Mm. And, you know, and just say, okay, you know, I bought you this nice watch. He'll look at you and say, it's broken. And you would be like, well, that doesn't really matter. Right. You know, because, yeah. <laughs> no, because, but, it, but he'll say, well, no, the purpose of a watch is to tell time. This one does not tell time because it's broken. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's a bad watch. Right, and you're like, right. whoa, 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 whoa. We got to start over. This is, there's so many, like. <laughs> Are you saying there's like design? And right? purpose? Yeah, I think, and I think what the smart atheist will say back to you is, well, yeah, that's an artifact, right? <laughs> it's like talking about uh, a microphone. Well, yeah, we designed it for that purpose. But nature isn't designed, right? Um, and, and I think that's where you just have to sort of dig in your heels and say, no, nature acts for an end. Yeah. Uh, this is the fundamental, uh, one of the fundamental principles of classical ethics. Um, uh, but even just sort of outside of that, just start trying to understand the world around us, right? We understand it by thinking about it in terms of purposes and ends, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Think about the end, and then we can understand the organization. We can understand the behavior. This is, and the thing that's so funny is the most the people who are most adamant sometimes about this as soon as they get done saying Christians are stupid, they'll turn around and apply natural purposes to um, their field of inquiry, right? right? So you think about, uh, I, I, for a long time as a kid, I was really interested in, um, there was a wonderful documentary about the wolves of uh, Yellowstone National Park uh, that I, I watched quite a few times. And the, the naturalist who uh, was uh, sort of taking the lead on this, you know, followed this pact. So this was actually what was so interesting about it through about three seasons, I want to say, oh, three wow. years. So you, you actually got a sense of, oh, like, I kind of understand. Because, like, if you don't do that, right, then you're just sort of like wolves occasionally show up and eat stuff, yeah. right? And then Randomly they go away. attack people. <laughs> right, yeah, right. But, but actually, you know, wolves uh, live really fascinating lives uh, once you sort of follow them for a period of years. But it's not sort of like, I mean, what this naturalist was never sort of like, well, I don't know why the hell they're doing that, right? Yeah. No, right? Like like every behavior after observing it, right, he could say, oh, the purpose for this behavior, this is why these wolves are, these particular wolves are fighting each other, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. For the purpose of establishing a breeding order. This is why uh, wolves hunt in the, in the, the, almost like a formation, almost like a, a tactical strategy, right, yeah. uh, that they do. This is why wolves go after old and um, and very young elk. Is it because they're mean? <laughs> wolves are mean. That's why they go after the young. No. Okay. <laughs> because they want to eat as efficiently as possible. It's easier to kill the young and the old and eat them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think that's one thing that, you know, even, even that, like, the, the – because that narrative is is kind of played out so much today that that many good um, good Christians and like you said you know we operate our day-to-day -day lives uh -huh. based on based on a, a, a real philosophy of, of metaphysics and purpose and meaning and all these things you know uh, yeah, as, soon as, as soon as we shut up about you know uh, you know <laughs> trying to justify you know I don't know our sexual decadence or whatever it may be, uh, you know, then we start to recognize like, oh yeah, we, we just, we go back to the natural way of talking. Imagine if your doctor was sort of like, like I don't know what the kidney's for, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, I gotta get out of here, right? Cause 
I want my doctor to believe in natural purposes, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I think there's a lot of good Christians out there who struggle with understanding religion and the things of God connected, connected sure. to uh, this kind of uh, natural philosophy or this kind of metaphysical understanding of the world. How do we get get back to that? How do we how yeah. do we understand the things of God within this kind of nature, purpose, meaning? Uh, sure. uh, kind of framework, I guess, if that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things you want to say is that nature acts for an end. So, you know, that that it's not as if God arbitrarily or extrinsically imposes order on the natural world. Rather, mm-hmm. he, the natural world is embedded with the purposes that God gave it, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the ways, you know, like, you don't want to say, like, God imposes seeing on the eye rather god intended for man to see and therefore he designed the eye does that make sense right that's the way you want to think about it right so that so that you know from uh, you know basing yourself on the fifth way that is thomas aquinas's fifth argument for the existence of god he goes from the premise that there is order and that there is uh, uh that there are natural ends to the conclusion that there must be a universal mind that governs and directs these things towards ends. Mm-hmm. So what you want to say is that nature acts for an end. Unintelligent things have purposes, which sounds weird at first to think about. Yeah, it's not as if the tree is thinking my purpose is to is to perpetuate, uh, you know, I don't know, oak tree life, right? Or the badger is thinking about, well, I'm going to perpetuate badger life. <laughs> but they do actually act for an end without without knowing that they are doing so, right? Unintelligent things. Because God has designed them with a purpose. In the way that this microphone that I'm speaking into was designed, right? It doesn't think, oh, my purpose is to you know, yeah. work, uh, take in uh, sound waves or amplify them or whatever. But, um, but, but it, it, it does have that end, and, and it effectively does its operations because it was designed for that end. Similar with the badger. The badger isn't thinking, well, my job is to perpetuate badger life. Right. Um, but it, in fact, is designed to that end. So then the question is, you know, well. On the on the from the fact that we can observe the badges are ordered towards an end and the trees are ordered towards an end and all those sort of things, we can infer that they must come from an intelligent source. Right. right? That is uh, that some that there was some intelligence, you know, from which all of these things came in order for them to have the design uh, that they, they do. Now, in terms of arguing for this, two things are uh, there's two you know, there's a couple of different paths you can take here. Mm-hmm. I think one of them is just kind of an inductive path. Some people some people don't like that. Some philosophers don't like that. But if you go through example after example after example, yeah. eventually you, you 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 show like things are just more understandable. They make more sense when you think about it this way. That yeah. is that that there are natural purposes. I think that that's actually. When it really comes down to being persuaded by something, right? I think that that, even though inductive reasoning doesn't give you that sort of knockdown conclusion uh, that some people really want, it, I actually think that's more persuasive, right? When you watch example after example after example, you say, you know what? Yeah, the, the evidence- hypothesis of natural design just makes more sense than the, than its opposite. Yeah, the evidence for it is just completely overwhelming, and you know, the evidence of the contrary is just, it's solely, sorely lacking. The other way of, uh, of doing this that's, that's useful is what's called reductio ad absurdum, right? That's mm-hmm. the word, that is, it's a, it's a form of deductive reasoning where you take a hypothesis, right? That's the opposite of your view and you reduce it to the absurd, 
you show that there's some sort of contradiction or some sort of self-defeating character to a hypothesis. So right. the most obvious example of this, maybe it's not the most obvious, but very obvious is, <laughs> you know, uh, is that, you know, the claim that all truths are relative or that there are no um, absolute truths, right? Right. It's obviously false because it contradicts itself. That is, if it's true, then it can't be true that there are no absolute truths, right? Mm, right. That's, a, that's a, a classic example of reductio ad absurdum. For some strange reason, <laughs> this, this doesn't prevent people from being relativists, right? <laughs> Even though their position is like, you know, day two of logic class. <laughs> well, this is an example of really idiotic thinking, right? Um, and I don't know. Anyways, God bless us. But anyways, uh, so the um, uh, so that's a good way of uh, uh, I think of defeating many errors, uh, modern errors, is to, to show um, that they lead to that is they reduce to some sort of contradiction or some sort of self-defeating kind of characteristic. And so I think the denial of natural purpose is sort of like that, right? You end up having to posit things like that, you know, that the greater comes from the lesser, that the yeah. ordered comes from the disordered, right? Uh, that just we have this sort of spontaneous order, and you're sort of like, well, why isn't you're just, you know, I mean, eventually at some point, Bertrand Russell just says, you know, shut up, right? <laughs> like, stop asking why it is. This is the way it is, and then we can start to reason. Okay, fine. Uh, you know, I get the point, but that's not doesn't really answer the question, right? Yeah. Um, so that uh, what you know, if you hold for kind of an extreme version of ev of, of evolution, right, of, of randomness, right, then you really say order comes from disorder, and that those are those are that's metaphysically absurd. Yeah. Okay? The uh, uh, right is the, those are complementary categories, complementary meaning in the technical sense that they're opposites that divide the world, right? So the same thing cannot be ordered and disordered at the same time in the same respect, right? It violates the law of non-contradiction. If you, if you violate that principle, all reasoning, including math and science, go out the, out the window. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, to say that the, the, that the ordered comes from the disordered is, is metaphysically absurd. Maybe even more strongly, right, uh, you can develop a reductio ad absurdum argument against... Um, sort of extreme randomness on the basis of kind of the epistemological side. That mm -hmm. is, if reason isn't ordered to an end, right? That is, if reason isn't designed for and ordered to uh, truth and knowledge and science, then we have no good reason, no non-question-begging reason to uh, believe that reason is reliable, even in its scientific and mathematical uh, functions. Th does that make sense? Yeah, that, yeah, and that is quite absurd. Um, That's right. Going back to kind of just the original question about looking at purpose, the mm -hmm. purpose of our reasoning and the purpose of sure. our thinking and reasoning is ordered towards truth. And right. it's ordered, you know, I mean, the, the fact that uh, science books can exist show, right. that, show that there's not only a great amount of reasoning on the part, I mean, a great amount a great amount of ordering and reasoning, because uh, where you have order, you'll have reasoning, on the part of the natural world and the things in it, but also on the part of the person writing or the person reading the science book, that we can, uh, that they can make sense of it. So, I mean, it even seems odd for even the person to, to be reasoning towards this kind sure. of think uh, or maybe you could talk a little bit more you know about what happens if we if we don't believe in the purpose of of our own reasoning 
Does right, it have so, any meaning? Does it, what is it, what do we do with that? Yeah, you could just say, look, I mean, so a good a philosopher who talks about this and does a good job is, uh, it's not a Catholic philosopher, but uh, a Protestant philosopher. He's a very good uh, uh, philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. When he says, look, it just could be the case, right, that reason is something that is uh, survival apt and uh, non-veridical. That is something that um, just, you know, developed, but has no, like, it was sort of a, a random mutation, uh, the result of random mutations, but it's not designed for truth. It's just actually really helpful for survival, right? <laughs> now, of course, he doesn't believe that. Right. And so he wants to say is, you know, if you hold that view, so he calls it naturalistic evolution, right? Mm -hmm. So naturalistic evolutionary theory wants to exclude all design and God, of course, from the evolutionary story. And so um, the, uh, what he wants to say is, like, th there's no, there's, that, all of the science that, that, that sort of supposedly supports the evolutionary story, all of that science, um, you can't trust it. <laughs> yeah. Not because he's being some sort of like religious fanatic, but just because um, if you hold that it's just a kind of arbitrary random mutation that we have reason, then you can't, you have no reason to assume. You have, again, no reason to assume that or infer that reason, uh, our cognitive apparatus is in fact reliable. But we could say, well, look at all these times I can I can show you all these times where it worked out. See, so like we we flew to the moon, we can predict weather, we can cure all these different diseases. But all that assumes that your cognitive apparatus is correct. You're you're citing things as evidence, presupposes that your cognitive apparatus is truth apt. Right? Yeah. That it is it is it is ordered towards the truth. But if you deny from the outset that uh, reason is ordered to truth, right? That reason has as its natural end truth then you have no good grounds for assuming that science or math or any other uh, deliverance of reason is, in fact, reliable. We understand that when it comes to things like math, science, reading, you know. But when it comes to, like, the human person uh, or, or religion or something, we're so... Now, is it, I mean, is it just the result of the fall? One <laughs> of the results of the fall? I mean, is it just us in our prideful wills? I mean, or, or what is it? What is it that's there that when it comes to the human person, we're afraid to make the same conclusions that, you know, some people will die for when it comes to science and scientific truth and mathematical truth and all these things? Right. I would say pride, greed, and sex. <laughs> the big <laughs> three. Like, the big three. I mean, like, it really comes down to it. I mean, when I was uh, teaching ethics at a, at a Catholic college, you know, I would have a... Uh, I'd have a couple of weeks that I called uh, murder, sex, and money. And, uh, you know, those were the most exciting uh, weeks in the course. <laughs> right? And this is where I would get, I get, get into the nitty gritty of, of applying ethics to concrete particular kinds of actions. Mm -hmm. And so we talked about murder, sex, and money. And uh, so, you know, your, your violence, right? Uh, violent actions, uh, sexual actions. And then it really interesting uh, economic action, right? Yeah. Money, right? And it was really interesting, like, the students got as animated about the use of money and the pursuit of money, right, as they did sex, right, mm. which I thought was really interesting. Like, in a sense, I could kind of see, the, I can see the connection, you know, reflecting back on it, but, you know, I didn't anticipate it, right, uh, yeah. at the time, right? And so you think, like, what is the purpose of, is there a purpose to human ownership, right? Is private property something, uh, and owning things, right? 
is that just a, an arbitrary human invention or does property the use of material things have some end and in fact it does have an end and if you want more of it that this is, this is not a very american thing to say but if you want more so so much of it that it exceeds the natural purpose then that's actually in fact vicious right? <laughs> it's a vice and it's called greed right <laughs> you shouldn't want much more than what you need for today and tomorrow, according to your circumstances of life and decency. Um, so that, that maybe we could do a podcast about greed, <laughs> but you know, the, you know, forget that, man. Yeah. I want, I want a bass boat. I want, uh, you know, to live by myself in a three thousand square foot house. <laughs> I want to. No, no, no. Uh, I need, I need a bass boat. I need. That's right. I need boat. a bass boat <laughs> and the suburban, right? You know, or whatever. You know, you know. So I need all those things, right? Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> that's greed. That's conspicuous consumption, and it's vicious, right? But we don't like that. See, like I want, but I want the the you know this thing, right? I want the second SUV. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I want the three thousand square foot house that I don't need. I want that blah blah blah. I want, I want, I want. And so I think when it comes down to it, it's like you're quite right to kind of see it as rooted in pride. When pride ultimately drives us to think of ourselves as the end of everything, mm -hmm. we make ourselves the ultimate end of everything around us. In that sense, right, it literally is idolatrous, right, because we place ourselves in the position of God, who is the ultimate end of all things. The prideful person, and all of us have some pride, right, we subordinate everything else to ourselves as if we, in our very substance, were the ultimate end. And so, you know, a woman doesn't exist um, for um, God, right? She exists for my pleasure, right? right. Uh, you know, material things don't exist for supporting human life. They, they, they exist in order to make me have just the right backsplash so I feel wonderful about my kitchen, <laughs> right? I mean, all those sorts of things, right? Where, you know, you, you, about vanity and about all that, right? So it becomes, instead of their, them having their own natural ends, mm -hmm. right? Those things come to have uh, yourself, Right, right. they're in, right? and so what you can do then is you can live however you want. You can, you know, sort of be the god of your own universe. So I think, you know, in large measure, and of course, you know, I've, uh, I've sort of avoided on purpose just reducing it to talking about sexual ethics. But where this is most obvious, right, is mm -hmm. in the area of sexual ethics, where every society, every sane society for almost all of human history has recognized that sex is pleasurable, duh, right, but that, you know, have seen that the natural end of sex, right, is um, union and irreducibly yeah. <laughs> uh, procreation, right? <laughs> Having babies, you know, even, even somebody as, as decadent as Sigmund Freud, right, said, right, that the further sex moves from, from that procreative function, mm -hmm. right, the more and more it needs to be recognized as neurotic, right? And that's Sigmund yeah. Freud, right? Who's like hardly <laughs> kind of conservative, right? But he recognized, look, that you know, the, that sane, healthy sex is tied to one degree or the other. I'm just gonna be loose here on it, but to one degree or the other is tied to uh, procreation. And the further sex goes from being tied to that, that natural end, mm -hmm. the more it participates in uh, neurosis. We understand, you know, things can have many different meanings and mean many different purposes. But to begin with those natural ends, those like you were talking about with sex, the unitive and procreative aspects of them. And, and we do this with, I mean, again, almost everything in the natural world. We begin with what are those uh, natural ends? Okay, we 
once we have those established, then we can look for uh, further meeting, further implications, uh, things like that. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like, you know, scripture, you begin with the literal sense and then all other senses of scripture come after that. When we're trying to understand things, particularly on a ethical level, we have to begin with those, with those kind of natural ends. What is the purpose of this thing? You know, and, and if something doesn't, if something neglects one of those ends, if something, you know, uh, we would say it's, you know, like, a, like we go back to the clock example. Uh, mm-hmm. The purpose of a clock is to tell time. If it doesn't tell time, it's a bad clock. And, and you know, so. Wait if a second, Jason. Jason, yeah. Jason, wait a second. Are, are you suggesting that there are bad people? <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want to be divisive because that's the highest. <laughs> That's the highest virtue we have. <laughs> well, and, and that that was that was my next point. Is 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 many times many times today, um, there's um, I think it was uh, Cardinal Roberts here. He's got a book on silence that's good. Oh, I th- and I fantastic think it's, book! Fantastic I, book. I, I think it's I think it's in that book. I could be wrong. Or I remember reading recently about the idol of community, uh, and we could do a whole podcast on this. But 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 when but when the the community becomes an idol, we hold up things like not being divisive, above mm. being what is true. Like we would right, rather right, yeah. we we don't want to do anything to divide the community, even if it sure. may be something that is true. You know. So I mean, I think right. you know. Again, when we when we begin with understanding those those natural ends, natural purposes, a that's where we're going to find fulfillment. Because, again, this goes back to not only the design for the world, but the design for us to interact with the world. But also, you know, it, it can, if we, if we begin with these things, it can kind of ward off those other things that may try to creep into our lives and lead us away from God, lead us away from what is true. You know, because, I mean, like today, I mean, being divisive is like one of the most horrible things a human person can do. Yeah, you're, you're of course, right, Jason, rhetorically uh, <laughs> and, and socially. But, you know, that only cuts one way. You know, I mean, if you're being um, divisive by saying Catholics are backwards, you know, Oh, right, right. Yeah. You know, men are evil. Well, see, that's true, right? You know, then that's okay. It's okay to be divisive that way, right? Uh, so it actually only goes in one direction here. Uh, but uh, but but you're right that, that that very often is used, right? This goes towards, you know, just sort of really the foundation of classical ethical thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say just common sense ethical thinking, uh, which recognizes uh, that there are natural purposes, Uh you know, I'm I wear glasses not because they decorate my face nicely, but because I have bad eyes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. They're not morally bad as in they're not voluntarily bad, but they're bad <laughs> eyes because I can't see well without my glasses. Right? Everything is, is fuzzy. And so it makes sense. If I said oh, I've got bad eyes, you wouldn't look at me like. What, what are you talking about? You guys? <laughs> right, right. They do look you bad. You understand what I mean, right? Like, yeah. Oh, you can't see well. That's why you wear glasses. Okay, I right, get it. Because they do not fulfill the purpose they were designed for. That's right. Exactly. And 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 humans are human action is like that though. That's, yeah. Morality is completely objective uh, because there are objective purposes, natural purposes to which the human person is connected. When you don't, when you act in a way that doesn't fit with those natural purposes, mm-hmm. like if you voluntarily eat glass, right? <laughs> then, right, that's that's not just unhealthy; it's vicious, right? right? Because it's contrary to the natural end of eating and of your di- digestive system. And this will be borne out very quickly if you eat glass, right? <laughs> um, uh, that it's contrary uh, to its natural purpose. Um, 
so those kinds of things, right, where you can see that there are natural purposes to things allows us to evaluate voluntary human action as either good or bad from an objective framework. And therefore also, and this even if people who agree with that will sometimes then you know slam the brakes as, as someone would say, and evaluate agents, right? <laughs> that is that there are uh, like there are bad agents, right? Yeah. That is there are human beings who are bad because why? Because they do bad things, right, right on a consistent basis. Now here here's the other side of this is we're all bad, <laughs> okay, and that's why we need the gospel, right? right. Uh, we we need the gospel. We need our Lord. We need grace, because the truth about us, right, is that while not all of us are as bad as we could be, right, some of us are worse than others. Words of hope. We all fit the category of bad, except yeah. for Our Lady and Jesus Christ. <laughs> all right. Well, Doctor Smith, thank you very much for that <laughs> that <laughs> message of hope. There, we are all bad, you know. But there is, <laughs> but the gospel message is there. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that when, whenever we're, we're looking at or talking to people about these kinds of things, to base what we're talking about in reality, whether it's truth, beauty, goodness, we base it in reality. And in the reality, in the nature of things, we can find meaning, we can find purpose. If we understand the purpose, then we can understand the meaning. And it's from there that we need to have conversations about what is true, uh, or we, we need to have those conversations about why the church teaches what she does teach from those kind of natural beginnings, natural things. It does a great job, I think, uh, from a theological perspective, to begin when you begin with a philosophical foundation like this, it brings together not only somebody, it, not only somebody's understanding, but it brings their reasoning in and they can say, oh, you know, they may they may say, I disagree with you, but hopefully they can at least say, that seems reasonable um, because a, a lot of times that's a first step to understanding what the church teaches, which then should hopefully lead to somebody believing what the church teaches. Uh, and so I want to invite all of our listeners to check out all of our content over at CatholicStudiesAcademy.com. Until next time, God bless.